Let us pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we, uh, we honor you and give you thanks and praise for the glorious salvation that you've given us, that you've called us out of darkness into your glorious light, and we're forever grateful. Heavenly Father, help us think well on these things in your word in 1 Corinthians, and help us to understand what Paul is saying to those at Corinth so that we may apply these things to our lives and that we may live lives that are pleasing in your sight. We ask that you would accomplish that in us and for us. In Jesus' name, amen. As you can see, we're in verses 17 through 24 of the 7th chapter of 1 Corinthians. I entitled this Paul's principle, Stay as you were when called. That is the overriding principle in this 7th chapter. However, I don't want anybody to misunderstand and think that what Paul is saying is concerning one's lot or status in life, that you cannot change status. So, for instance, let's say you were a slave that you couldn't become free. Okay, Paul is not laying out a rule where you cannot change. He's simply saying that status before God, the only status that matters is being justified, that is, being in Christ. All of the other statuses, whether they be marital or societal, are really irrelevant to God. He is no respecter of person. Okay, And so, therefore, when the Corinthians are saying that in order to be more spiritual, they had to abstain from the normal sexual relations between a man and a wife and the bonds of marriage, Paul is saying that's not true. That's not true. That's irrelevant before God. So here's a situation that Paul was addressing. Again, the Corinthians believe that change in status, that is becoming celibate even though married, was needed to help conform them to the more spiritual status they had already attained. So Paul refutes this notion by explaining that the only change in status that matters is the status of right standing before God in Christ. Remember Galatians 3.28, there's no slave nor free nor Jew nor Gentile nor male nor female, but all are one in Christ Jesus. The only status that ultimately matters at the end of the day is whether one is justified or not. Okay, And so Jew or Gentile, that used to be a huge societal status issue between those who had access to the covenants of God and those who did not. But that even that boundary is no longer there in Christ. Okay, So the only thing that matters is their status before God. So because a believer's justification transcends all other relationships, believers are free to remain in their previous social construct, married, single, circumcised, free, slave, etc. Okay, that's what this section is all about. Now let me just have you recall where we were when we left off. And again, you're going to see this principle again, stay as you were when called. Remember the last time, 1 Corinthians 7, 15 through 16, we left off with this verse. Let me read it and do some further explanation. Paul said, Yet if the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. The brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases. Now let me stop there. Remember I had pointed out that that does not mean that a brother and sister whose unbelieving spouse leaves is free of the marriage. It's just that they don't have to track that person down and try to uphold their end of the marital agreement, as it were, because that was what the issue was. And remember we said it was best rendered then with a period there and then an adversative but. And that but means that now Paul is giving you an exception and he's saying, but God has called us to peace. And we said that that was a Hebraism. And the Hebraism is that the people of God bestow peace upon those who are undeserving. So you have the, if you were the believing spouse, you're going to be bestowing peace upon the unbelieving spouse. And that fits well with the logic because notice it starts off for... 
And that's a logical connection to what has followed earlier. For how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? Implied, that's why you stay married. That's why you bestow peace upon those who are even undeserving, as the Jews used to do to the Gentiles. So the unbeliever, or I should say the believer, does to the unbeliever. Okay? Now, when we come to verse 17, Paul continues this thought. He says, Only as the Lord has assigned to each one... As God has called each, in this manner let him walk, and so I direct in all the churches. Now, one word that we want to dig into here, it's actually a phrase, is only. It comes from a may. If I were to render, render this literally from the Greek, it's literally if not. But it's often rendered idiomatically, okay? And especially by Paul, it's often rendered only or nevertheless. Nevertheless is probably the best. Now, how does Paul use this phrase Well, he uses it to make exceptions of a previous negative clause. So in other words, you have this negative clause and you say, what he's saying is, even though I speak in light of this, this is the normal way I want you to be thinking. So if we look to the last negative clause, it's up in verse 15. The brother or the sister is not under bondage in such cases. That is, you don't have to uphold your end of the marital agreement. However, Paul is saying, or nevertheless, as the Lord has assigned to each one, as God has called each, in this manner let him walk. And so Paul's point is to stay in the situation you are. Okay, stay as you were when called. He's just reiterating the principle that he's been laying out. Now let me show you a debate that's um, present in this verse, verse 17, and it surrounds what I have highlighted in the red. That is where it says the Lord is assigned to each one and as God is called to each. The debate surrounds two different interpretations. One sees the Lord and God as the same person, and sees what they're doing as synonymously parallel. That is Christ the Son and the Father. Or I should say that they see them as distinct persons, but they're doing the same thing. Christ the Son and the Father each have assigned or called people to their individual social setting in life, whether it be married, single, things like that, right? Now, the other option is that these are not parallel, but rather that these clauses indicate two distinct actions. In other words, Christ has assigned each person's social setting And God, that is the Father, has called people to salvation. Okay? So in other words, is Jesus the Lord and God the Father, are they doing the same thing or are are they doing different things here in this verse? Now, how could we tell? Well, one way we can tell whether these are synonymously parallel, they're saying the same thing or doing the same thing, is by subjects. Typically, you'll have the same subject in parallelism. But actually, we have two different subjects here, don't we? We have the Lord... And that, of course, is normally a reference to the second person of the Trinity, the Son. Okay, now certainly God the Father is also our Lord, right? And certainly our Lord is also God. But the point is, is Paul is making a distinction between something the Son is doing and something that the Father is doing. Okay, another way to determine whether these are synonymous is by looking at the verbs. If they were synonymous, the verbs would often be in the same tense, and they're not here. So we have different subjects. And we have different verb tenses. This assigned here comes usually from moretzo, that's in the present tense. But here we have it in the aorist. It's aorist active indicative. So this E, this is a, what's called an augment. It's an epsilon. That tells us in the aorist. And it's used in Romans 12.3, for instance, for the allotment of a spiritual gift. So in other words, the Son, that is Jesus, has assigned people their vocation or their social setting in life, okay? And in fact, you can view that, therefore, as a gift. Jesus has called you 
to your gift of marriage or celibacy or whatever situation you find yourself in, Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, is sovereign over that. That's what Paul is saying. Okay? Well, then, the Father, notice what the Father is, what he has done. It says that he has called each. And this calling, of course, friends, has to do with the effectual calling. It comes from kaleo, and here we have the perfect tense. We have a, what's called reduplication, where it says kappa, epsilon, kappa. We know that's reduplication, therefore we must be in the perfect tense. Okay, so the perfect tense is obviously different than the aorist. Therefore, we don't have synonymously parallel sentences. But rather, the son is doing one thing, and the father is doing something else. So here, friends, we have a great passage that proves the Trinity, that shows there's different workings within the Trinity uh, the different persons in the Godhead. And so here we have the Father actually calling those out to salvation. And the idea of the perfect is that it happened in the past. It was perfectly completed, hence the term perfect, and its effect still lasts with us today. Well, what better way of describing salvation? And that's exactly what the Father is responsible. Remember in uh, John 6, Jesus says, no one can come to me. And he uses the term uh, dunamis, no one is able to. Come to me unless the Father draws him. Okay? And so, again, the idea that the Lord, uh, that is, I should say God the Father, is the one who calls. And he calls people effectually to salvation. If he did not call you effectually, you would spend the rest of your life in opposition to the things of God. But this effectual calling means that he turns your affection so much that, in fact, you're able to perceive and believe the gospel. And so it's completely a supernatural work. So again, this is a great Trinitarian passage, and it's funny that I think oftentimes when we read passages like this, they escape our notice, don't they? But again, it shows that, yes, Jesus is doing one thing and the Father is doing another. Now, does that mean in the entirety of Scripture that the Lord Jesus has nothing to do with our salvific call? No. But Paul is just pointing out this slight nuance to show us that, hey, you should be settled in where God, that is the Lord Jesus, has assigned you socially, And at the end of the day, what matters is that the God, the Father, has called you into salvation, and that's actually the status that matters. And that's why you can walk in the manner um, that God has called you. So number two is the best option here. So he continues then, verse 17, he says, In this manner let him walk. Now remember, we've talked about that term peripateo before. That idea of walking out one's salvation means to live out the salvation that you have, to live it out in practical day-to-day terms, to pick up your cross daily, to be obedient to the call of Christ in your life. And it's an imperative again. It's to live out their calling in whatever social sphere they were assigned. Now, Fee actually has a good comment here, and I think it's a good reminder. I've talked about this in the very beginning, but it's a good reminder. Fee says this, Paul's intent is not to lay down a rule that one may not change. Okay, notice the term may Fee, of course, being good linguistically, knows may has to do with permission. Okay, so certainly one may change. So it's not the idea that one may not change, but rather by thus hollowing one's situation in life, he is trying to help the Corinthians see that their social status is ultimately irrelevant as such, i.e., they can live out their Christian life in any of the various options, and therefore their desire to change is equally irrelevant. Okay, now remember, any of the options would be any of the moral options. If you're married, you can't say, well, I'm going to get divorced, um, and that's an option. No, you have, it's a moral option. But the point is, is where God has called you, that is the Lord Jesus Christ has called you, you are free to remain in that status, that situation, 
Because ultimately, the only status that matters to God is your right standing before him by justification through faith in Christ. That's what matters. So Paul explains then what really matters. In verses 18 through 19, he continues. He says, Was any man called when he was already circumcised? He is not to become uncircumcised. Let me just stop there. To Paul and a lot of those writers in the New Testament, circumcision and uncircumcision, another way of saying that is Jew or Gentile. Okay, Jew or Gentile. And again, that was a huge divide for hundreds of years. The division that mattered to the people of God was whether or not you were circumcised, whether or not you were part of the covenant community of Abraham. But now you are part of that covenant community differently. And so circumcision and uncircumcision doesn't matter. Jew or Gentile doesn't matter. What matters is faith in the Messiah. And that, in fact, is what the law pointed to all along. So that's Paul's point. He says, he is not to become uncircumcised. Has anyone been called an uncircumcision? He is not to be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing, and uncircumcision is nothing. But what matters is the keeping of the commandments of God. Now, what I want to talk about here is what does Paul mean by the commandments of God? Because if, in fact, he's talking about the Mosaic law, remember, circumcision and uncircumcision are part of the, I should say circumcision is part of the Mosaic law, isn't it? And so if the commandments of God are referring to the Mosaic law, it seems rather odd then that circumcision wouldn't matter because that was part of the Mosaic law. Do you follow the logic? And so what we want to do is figure out how does Paul use this term entelate, commandments. Well, it's interesting. I was reading a book by Thomas Schreiner. It's called The Fulfillment of the Law or The Law in Its Fulfillment or something to that effect. I never remember the titles of books. I love reading them, and I never remember the title. But his point is, is he does an exhaustive research into how Paul uses entele, that is commandments, and without, within the general context, if you don't have any information that says Paul is talking about the commands of Christ or his commands, that is Paul specifically, or some other command, then we read the commandments of God, it should be understood as the Mosaic Law. Okay, that's the default position. And so here we have, like in Romans 7, uh, 13.9, Ephesians 2.15, and 6.2, all examples of commandments, that is, entele, being used synonymously with the Mosaic Law. Okay, so that's what we have here. So with that, let me set up a syllogism for you and just show you what you and I should be wrestling with in our interpretation of this passage What Paul seems to be saying then is that, and we know this from history, that circumcision is one of the commandments of God. It was part of the Mosaic law, right? And if that's true, Paul seems to be saying that keeping the commandments of God is what's important. That is, all commandments of God must be obeyed by people. Otherwise, we're sinning, right? And so, therefore, it would follow circumcision must be obeyed by the people. Why? Because it's one of the commandments of God, and all commandments of God must be followed. And by the way... This is a categorical syllogism. You can look up on our apologetics website. And let me just tell you, I checked this out because I knew somebody would call me out on the carpet. This is formally valid. Okay, in other words, it doesn't break any of the laws of logic as far as validity. But that doesn't mean it's true. Okay, there's a difference between formally valid and being true. Okay, so the point is, is when we look at this conclusion... The conclusion follows the two premises formally. Okay? So circumcision must be obeyed by the people. So what you and I can do is by looking at a syllogism like this, we can say, why is number three not true? Because we know we're not bound to circumcision or uncircumcision. 
So why may that be the case? Well, let's look at our premises. Number one, maybe circumcision is no longer one of the commandments of God. However, again, it's odd that Paul would say that the commandments of God must be kept. That's what matters. Okay, well, let's look at premise two. All commandments of God must be obeyed by the people. Well, here's another option is that in Christ, Christ obeyed the law perfectly on our behalf, didn't he? So perhaps there's something that in Christ, being that he has, in fact, obeyed the law on our behalf, in Christ we are now obedient to the law. And that's, I think, the angle that Paul would be getting at here. But he has to remind the Corinthians who think there's no ethical obligations because, remember, they have spiritually arrived, right? And he has to remind them, that no, there are ethical demands upon their lives. They can't just live any way they want. So let me just bring you back to circumcision. And let's just do a little bit of a study. Again, this is an excursus. An excursus is a way for me to go on a bunny trail and make it sound like it's very worthwhile, okay? And hopefully this will be worthwhile. All right, so let's see if we can glean anything from how circumcision came about. And let's go to the Old Testament and let's look at the covenant that God made with Abraham. And I'm going to start in Genesis 15:18, but let me remind you of the setup. In Genesis 15, well, let me start back in Genesis 12. As early as Genesis 12, Abram at the time was given the promise that the seed, the seed, the same seed that was talked about in Genesis 3:15. That had to be the Messiah. Why? Because in Genesis 3.15, the third person uh, masculine singular pronoun, he, is used. And in Hebrew, it's actually who. Who is he and he is she. (laughs) Now you're all confused, right? The whole point is who is the pronoun in Hebrew, but it actually means he. So the point is, in Genesis 3.15, you know the primary reference to the seed is the Messiah. You know it. And in fact, Paul says as much as in Galatians 3.16, he talks about the seed was Christ. Okay, so now the seed is promised to come from Abraham, Abram at the time. In Genesis 15, the very beginning, here's the, the, the conflict. The rub is this. Abraham asks the, the Lord, he says, how do I know I'm going to receive this promise? Eliezer of Damascus is the only heir that I have. And so what the Lord does is he takes him outside, he has him look into the stars, and he says, so shall your seed be. And here we have the idea of the one and the many. The many, that is the Israelites, are going to bring the one about, that is the Messiah. And so it says in Genesis 15:6 that Abram believes God and it's credited him as righteousness. But then he follows this similar format. Abram asks him a second time, how do I know that I'm going to receive the promise? Because the Lord ends up telling him all the things that he's going to do for him. And then what the Lord has him do is he has him take these animals. And Abram is going to cut the animals in two and they're going to karath bereath. They're going to cut this covenant. Okay, now what's interesting is the animals that Abram ends up cutting in half end up making primarily, or the animals that primarily make up the Levitical uh, sacrificial system. Okay, so in some sense, it's a foreshadowing of the Levitical priesthood sacrificial system that we have. So interestingly enough, what comes before the sacrifices or the cutting of the animals? Well, faith does. Abraham was already justified. Okay, so then what, what good is cutting the animals? Well, it's evidence that this promise is coming. And so it is even in the Levitical system, you see. Okay? So the point being, though, is when God has Abram cut the, the animals in two, he cuts this covenant. But what's Abram doing this whole time? He's sleeping, right? And so the way you would cut a covenant is if me and Lois were cutting one, our two tribes are warring, I would walk the blood path, and I would say, Lois, if I go against my 
uh, promise of the covenant, may what happened to these animals happen to me in sevenfold. Well, realize, friends, Abram never replies because he's asleep. So who alone cuts the covenant? Well, God does. God is the one who cuts the covenant. In fact, you see that term here in Genesis 15, 18. It says, On that day Yahweh literally cut a covenant with Abram, saying to your seed, I have given this land. Okay, so we have Karath. He cut the covenant. And again, it's, it's God alone who did it. Why? Abram's he's sawn locks. He's asleep, right? Now, let's move ahead then. And we don't know exactly how far. We know Abram is 99 years old in Genesis 17. We're not sure how old he is in Genesis 15. We're not given the data. But more than likely, a significant period of time has gone by. Okay? So in Genesis 17 now, listen, this is where Abraham gets circumcision. Okay? And listen to what the Lord says. He says, I will establish my covenant between me and you, and I will multiply you exceedingly. Now let me just stop there. This term, establish, literally can mean to give. It's nathan. And Nathan means to graciously give something or can have that connotation. So what's interesting here is no longer is the Lord saying that he's going to cut a covenant because he's already done that, but rather he's going to establish, I think that's a very good rendering by the NASB, he's going to establish his covenant between himself. And notice he calls it my covenant. It's not Abram's covenant. It's his covenant. Why? Because he alone cut it. Okay? But he is now going to give it sovereignly, unilaterally, to Abram. And he says, And I will multiply you exceedingly, and I will establish my covenant between me and you, and your seed. Now remember what's pregnant within that term seed is the Messiah. Right? Between me and you and your seed. Now, of course, the Messiah, wrapped into this idea of corporate solidarity, would also be Israel. So the promise is not only for the Messiah, but it's for Israel too. Right? The people of God who will bring about the seed. So here's the point. If Israel dies in the wilderness or they die in Egyptian captivity, who do you lose? You lose the one. And yet the one, the Messiah, is going to provide salvation for the many. And so he says, So to me and you and your seed after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant, and you shall circumcise in your flesh. Now listen, this is very important. In your flesh or in the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. So what is circumcision? Well, circumcision is a sign of the covenant. It's not the covenant because the Lord sovereignly cut that already. But this is now a sign of the covenant, and a sign symbolizes a greater reality. So this is the way I view it, is that God cuts the covenant. We already saw that in Genesis 15. The Lord makes it very clear that the God, that is Yahweh, cut it alone. That's why Abraham's snoozing, right? So God alone cuts the covenant So what does Abraham do then in circumcision? Well, he's cutting the symbol of the covenant. That is that one day the seed will come from your lineage. And so this cutting of all the males is this symbol that one day the seed will come. And he's coming from your lineage, and one day the seed will be cut. But that is a sign of the covenant. It's not the covenant itself. Okay? So God cuts the covenant, and he gives it sovereignly to Abraham. Abraham cuts the symbol of the covenant. Well, what happens then in the New Testament is Christ cuts the covenant. He says in Matthew 26, 28, he says, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. So when the seed comes, he has cut, and he cuts the eternal covenant, the, the new covenant on our behalf, right? So just as the Lord cut the covenant in Genesis 15, Jesus does the same thing. And all the while, Abraham, the cutting was the symbol that one day the seed would come. The point being, friends, is once the seed is here, you no longer need the symbol of it. Why? Because the reality is here. You no longer have to keep Sabbath. Why? 
Well, because now we have our Sabbath rest, you see. And so that's why Paul can genuinely say circumcision and uncircumcision, the actual physical act means nothing. What actually matters is keeping the commandments of God because in Christ, now you and I are circumcised, the idea, right? We're now obedient to those things because they always pointed to Messiah. That's the whole idea. And so what happens then in the scriptures is you have this parallel track, if you will, along with physical circumcision. There's this idea of a circumcision of the heart that develops. And the circumcision of the heart is used as God describes the means by which he is going to take a people who are disobedient to him, who have no faith in him, and through his sovereign action, he is going to change their heart so that they may believe, and therefore they may be obedient. And this is referred to as circumcision of the heart, and it's the promise of the new covenant. And it's ultimately what Paul talks about in Colossians 2.11, that you and I as believers in Jesus Christ have the circumcision without hands. It's something that God supernaturally does. So let me just show you a few passages. And it's right in the beginning of the Pentateuch. Deuteronomy 10, 16. Listen to what the Lord says. He says to the Israelites, So circumcise your heart and stiffen your neck no longer. That is, to be circumcised in heart means to be a responsive to the things of God. Okay? Deuteronomy 30, very interesting passage. It's a promise of the restoration. It's actually prophesied that the Israelites will be in captivity in the last days. But then here God also prophesies that they would return. Verses 4 of 6, Deuteronomy 30 says, If your outcasts are at the ends of the earth, from there Yahweh your God will gather you, and from there he will bring you back. Moreover, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart. Notice he's going to do it in the heart of your descendants. Remember that seed again. And to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul so that you may live. Then what we see, friends, is when we get to the prophets, this promise is directly connected to the new covenant. Ezekiel 36, 26. We also see this in uh, Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34 and so forth. But in Ezekiel 36, he uses this language, verse 26. Moreover, the Lord says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. That's the same thing as being circumcised. Okay, so the idea then is what ultimately matters is to be part of messianic salvation. And how do you do that? Well, God is going to do that by the pouring out of his spirit, enabling you to believe. Okay, enabling you to believe. And that's why Paul can genuinely say this in Romans 2, 28 through 29. For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. See, friends, that's always what mattered, because always what mattered was faith in the Messiah. If you were cut physically, that is physically circumcised, it didn't necessarily mean you were part of the covenant people of God. Any more than those who are baptized in some sense today are believers in Christ or are part of the covenant promises. What, matters, what mattered was faith all along. And so when the reality came, that is the seed, that is Messiah came, circumcision, the physical outward act, became passe. And what matters is the circumcision of the heart. So Christ, friends, fulfilled the law for us. And that's how we can genuinely be obedient to the law. Jesus is our sacrifice once and for all. Do we have to give sacrifices anymore? No. Hebrews 10 makes it very clear that the blood of bulls and goats could never provide atonement, could they? Okay. But Christ, in Hebrews 9.26 and 1 Peter 3.18, he is our once-for-all sacrifice. Sabbath-keeping. Again, Christ is our Sabbath rest. Do we have to keep Sabbath? No. We have our Sabbath rest in Christ. Circumcision. We have the circumcision of Christ, according to Colossians 2.11. It's a circumcision without hands. 
Okay, so again, he's fulfilled that for us. What about ceremonial cleanness? Well, in Christ, we're perpetually clean, right? Look at what he said to Peter. Remember in John 13, 10, Jesus said to him, he who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. He's referring, of course, here to Judas. But what's he talking about with cleanliness? Remember, Peter says, well, Lord, how dare you? He doesn't say it that way, but he says, no, you don't need to clean me, right? You, don't, you shouldn't be washing my feet. And then Jesus says, unless I wash you, Peter, you have no part with me. Well, then Peter, of course, says, well, then give me a bath or give me a shower, you know, wash the whole thing, you know. And then Jesus, the point Jesus is making is that in Christ, through faith in him, you're now ceremonially clean. You don't have to worry about these rituals where you would become ceremonially clean so you could enter the temple. Why? Because you have your purity in Christ. It's, it's what it all pointed to. So whether they be the sacrifices, Sabbath, circumcision, ceremony, cleanliness, we all have it in Christ now. So if you have trusted in Jesus Christ, Christ has completely fulfilled the law on your behalf. And therefore, you're obedient to the laws. That's the idea. Now, why does Paul then say that what matters is keeping the commandments of God? Because the Corinthians were saying that they could live any way they wanted. They were already realized spiritually they had they had gone as far as they needed to go and therefore it didn't matter what they did in the flesh because they were completely spiritual and paul is to say no what matters is keeping the commandments of god so this is why paul friends he says in romans 10 4 for christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes this term and by the way is telos now why is that significant well many of you have heard of the teleological argument and telos is the root of that Telos has to do with design. And so when we're using the teleological argument, what we're showing people is that there must be a designer because there is inherent design or a goal to the created order. Okay? So design presupposes a designer. So the idea that we have telos here is that we could read this for Christ is the goal or the design of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. So the point is, it's not the idea so much that we have the termination of the law, although you and I no longer have to keep the Mosaic law. The idea is that in Christ, we have reached its culmination. We've reached its fulfillment. We've reached the goal of it. Torah always talked about faith in Messiah, and that was the only way any of us could stand justified in his sight. So therefore, physical circumcision and uncircumcision means nothing. What matters is faith in Christ, and therefore you have obedience to every aspect of the law. Okay, even the moral law, when you're obedient or faithful, I should say, to your wife or your spouse, to your husband, who ultimately is responsible for that obedience? Well, Christ is. Ephesians 2.10, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So anytime we're even obedient in the moral law, it's not because it's our own efforts. It's because the Spirit of God now resides in us, which is the great promise of the new covenant. And therefore, God even gets the glory for our obedience to the moral law. And yet when we falter, Christ has completely obeyed the law on our behalf and therefore we're clothed in his righteousness and our sins are atoned for and they are now as far away as the east is from the west so far as he removed our sins from us so that is the great news friends that again we have in christ jesus he has fulfilled the law for us but again paul has to remind these corinthians that they have ethical obligations because god uses means to help the people of god persevere and to be sanctified okay wow i threw a lot at you but I hope that helps to understand 
how circumcision came about, what it actually was doing, and what it was used for. Hopefully that was helpful. Okay. Now let's move on to 1 Corinthians 7, 21 through 22, where Paul continues this thought then. He says, Each man must remain in that condition in which he was called. Were you called while a slave? Do not worry about it. But if you are able to become free, rather do that. For he who was called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's freedman. Likewise, he who was called while free is Christ's slave. Okay? Now, what I want to talk about again is there's a debate as to how to understand this section that I have highlighted in red. Some understand this negatively, that it, it has the idea, by the way, the debate is surrounds this little word if. Can you believe a little word if would create debate? But it comes from a phrase in the Greek, a chi. Chi is usually and, but together again, how do you render these two words together? Literally, if you were to be very literal, it would be if and. Well, if and doesn't read well. So we as English translators have to understand how does Paul use a chi together? And I think the NAS actually does a very good job. But here's the debate. Some see this as negative. It would be read like this. Everything in the red would be, even though you are able to become free, instead make the most of it. Okay, so this would have the idea that, yeah, you may be able to become free, that is, you're no longer a slave, but don't do that. Make usage of your slaveness or you're being a slave okay so this would be the negative view that would see yeah you just remain as you are and you can't become free even if you have the opportunity the opposite view then would be this is positive in this a chi that we have if up here which i think again the nas did a pretty good job would be seen as if indeed you are able also to become free by all means make use of it okay now again how do we determine which is you know, the best option here. Well, one thing that we can do is we can look at conjunctions. Conjunctions are very helpful because we have one right here, this but. Now think of the logic. If it says, were were you called while a slave? Do not worry about it. Now, if Paul is just carrying on the thought, um, then you could see, in other words, if this but is adversative, then you could understand why he's talking about gaining your freedom which would be a positive thing rather than remaining as you are. Okay, So how do we understand this but right here? Well, it's a, it's a conjunction that's either going to be connective or adversative. Okay? So it's either carrying on the thought that is connective even though you're able to become free, instead make the most of it. So just remain as you are. If you, if you could become free, just remain a slave. Okay? But if that but, no pun intended, is in fact adversative, then we should see it as, well, now I'm saying, yeah, you were called while a slave, do not worry about it, but, you know, even though I'm talking that it's okay to be a slave, if you can get your freedom, get it. Okay, that's what an adversative is, and that is actually what we have here, I think, because Allah is the strongest adversative conjunction that you have in the Greek text. Normally, if you were having a conjunction that could go either way, it would be day, D-E. Okay. Now, how could you do this work for yourself if you're in this passage? If you have a concordance, and, re, and let me remind you, if you have a concordance, make sure you have one that lines up with your English Bible. Okay. So if you have an NIV, you have to have an NIV concordance, or if you have an NAS, have an exhaustive NAS concordance. Well, you could look up the term, but, the conjunction, you could see what's being used, and then get a book like um, Vine's Dictionary or 
There's what's called um, the Theological Dictionary of the New Testament. It's a 10-volume set, but you can get the abridged version by Gerhard von Kittel. Is that right, Bob? Is that his name? <laughs> and the little abridged version is called Little Kittel. Okay? <laughs> and it, so it takes this 10-volume set, and it puts it in a book that's so thick, it's bulletproof, right? I mean, it's really a thick one. It's like the phone book. But you could look up how Allah is used, and you could do this work yourself. So you could say, oh, it's usually an adversative, so Paul is switching thought. Yeah, it's okay to be a slave, but if you can get your freedom, get it. So you could do all this work yourself. Okay, and so I, I wanted to bring these things in, but they're so heavy, I, I wimped out on you. I didn't want to load my bag. I think my bag would have torn if I would have put little Kittle in it. So anyway, maybe I'll bring it sometime, and I'll show you what little Kittle looks like. But anyway, that's the significance of all of Well, what else should we be looking at here that would confirm the idea that, yes, we should take it as positive. It's a contrast or a, an adversative. So therefore, it's if indeed you are able to become free, by all means, make use of it. Well, what I like to call it is I like to look at the verb sometimes, and I like to see if there's any wiggle room. Is there anything I can glean from the verbs? And there is, I think, because this term become right here, you would expect if Paul is talking about remaining a slave that you would have to have a present tense verb because you remain in the condition that you're in. However, become is an infinitive, genestai. Here it's um, dunestai, which is the ability uh, or, or you're able uh, for your freedom to become, literally is how you would read it. Okay, So to become, you're able to become free is how you would read it in English. You see, So genestai is what's called an infinitive, and it means to. You do something, it's to run, to walk, to this. And it's kind of the idea of a one-time action. Well, certainly, if you're to remain living out in slavery, you wouldn't see a verb that refers to a one-time action. You would see that, however, if you're if it's talking about getting your freedom, which, of course, the context says. So the very tense in the verb seems to indicate that as the infinitive fits better with one-time action becoming free rather than continuing in some action remaining in slavery. Now, Gordon Fee also points out that there's a term malon, which has to do with either, it's translated here, rather, and it would be very hard to make, um, I'm sorry, not, not rather, it's the, the verb. I forget what the verb is, but it has to do with making the most of it. That would be a huge stretch, okay? It, it literally means to use it or to do it or to make use of it. But to make the most of it would be a little bit of a stretch. So anyway, all of these things we can put together that point out that the positive view is the one that's inferred. So if you can get your freedom by all means, get it. And that's another important point that Paul's levying towards us is it's, again, you have the freedom to change your status, but ultimately your status is irrelevant before God. But don't think that you're locked into the setting that you're in. Again, we have to think morally, though. If you're married, you can't get out of your marriage. You're not free to do that unless your spouse dies, of course, or they're marily, mar- they have, you have marital infidelity issues, Okay. But again, the point is, is that there's freedom to move. If you can become free as a slave, do so. So don't be slaves to this world's ideas. I think that's what Paul is saying here in verses 23 through 24, where he says, you were bought with a price. And of course, that price is what Christ had paid, the seed promise. Uh, that is our seed he was cut for us, right? Do not become slaves of men, brethren. He says, each one is to remain with God in the condition in which he was called. Now, here's the concern I had with this verse is how do we understand this? Why the command not to become slaves? Do not become slaves of men. Remember, Paul seems to be indicating that your status doesn't matter, right? So if he could care less about status, why is he now giving a command that we can't become slaves? Because becoming a slave in this time period 
sometimes would be beneficial for the person because let's say you were completely bankrupt and you're going to be thrown out in the street. It might be better to become a slave that is you're basically you're part of a family who takes care of you and you do work for them and no longer are you on the street. Because remember, slavery in these days isn't racial slavery. It's not that type of evil. Sometimes it had to do with being poor and you had to sell yourself to someone in order to merely survive. So to me, it seems to create some tension that I think Paul would be in some sense violating the very commands that you're free to move status from one to another and you're also free to stay as you are. It just seems to me, so how is Paul then uh, wanting us to understand this verse? Well, I think Paul is probably using become slaves of men in a metaphorical sense. That is, the Corinthians were slaves to the false notion that status mattered and that by changing status, they could better reflect their spiritual status. They had bought into a pack of lies that came from men. It was the teachings of men that led them to believe that status mattered in the first place. So to believe this was to be in the bondage of man's thinking. I think that's what Paul is getting at. Now, I'm not sure. So, so you know, with this one, I'd be careful. But I think that's what Paul's driving at, okay? So with that, let me turn now to some application. And uh, Gordon Fee just had a beautiful application. So I want to have us read his words. And I know I've got a lot up here, but let me read this to you because I think it's very important. Friends, it's really fun to see someone who has really chewed on the text for a long time like Gordon Fee has because he owns this text, he has some beautiful applications. And I think this really uh, spoke to me, and I think it speaks to all of us in the age we live in. Listen to what Fee says in light of this passage. He says, In an exceedingly mobile culture in which upward mobility is almost a sacred duty, a passage like this does not get an easy hearing. On the one hand, there are those who think so poorly of their status that they find difficulty seeing it as a place in which to live out their calling as believers. The standard formula begins, oh, I'm just whatever, right? On the other hand, the tendency of most is to see status as significant and change as necessary. The two points Paul makes need to be heard anew. Number one, status of any kind is ultimately irrelevant with God. One is simply no better off one way or another. That does not mean that in a culture that provides opportunity, one should not seek to better oneself but it does mean that one whose life has been determined by God's call should not put any stock in it. I think that's good for all of us to hear. Number two, precisely because our lives are determined by God's call, remember that verse, Jesus calls us to the vocation and setting we're in, not by our situation, we need to learn to continue. I'm sorry, he's actually talking about the effectual call here, our salvation, not by our situation. We need to learn to continue there as those who are before God. That's why you ever hear R.C. Sproul calls it a quorum deo before the face of God application. That's what he's talking about. So we live before God. Paul's concern is not with change one way or the other, but with living out one's calling in whatever situation one is found. There let one serve the Lord and let the call of God sanctify to oneself the situation, whether it be mixed marriage, singleness, blue or white collar work, or socioeconomic condition. I'll tell you, this second application spoke to me, and I'll give you a little... I'll just kind of be vulnerable here for a moment. When I was an airline pilot, one of the reasons I got into airline flying, I wanted to be a fighter pilot earlier on in my life, but that was back when Clinton was gutting the military. We lost 500 com- or 1,200 combat aircraft in that time period, and so I knew I wasn't going to be able to fly fighters unless you were an academy graduate. So I went the civilian route, and my goal was to make lots of money and have lots of time off. 
And I know that sounds like quite a goal in life, but the reason why is because I wanted to do ministry. Okay, that so I thought, well, I'll fly. I love flying. Don't get me wrong. I love flying airplanes. But what happened is my first year, and I'll just be very honest with you, I made $15,000 as an airline pilot. I was gone a ton, and I became very bitter for the first three years of my life. And I really forgot this idea that the Lord Jesus had called me and that I should glorify him in whatever setting I was in. And so I had this self-pity party, woe is me, and I took it out on my friends and my family, and it was unbecoming someone who was a Christian. And so God dealt with me there in that situation. And in fact, later on, I learned to say, you know what? No matter how bad it is, I have a a vocational calling by the Lord Jesus Christ. And he has called me to such a time as this. And I am called to be faithful and represent him, not myself. And so God was able to turn me and change me. And then fortunately, um, I was able to actually leave the airlines some years later. But the point is, friends, maybe you're in that situation this morning where your job is less than ideal And it's actually a form of suffering every time you get up. Remember, blossom where the Lord has put you. You're called to represent him and his character, not necessarily yourself. And so maybe your job is really wearing on you. Remember, you are a stand-in and a representative of Christ. You're representing him to the world. And so therefore, do your job in such a way that even brings him glory. I had to do such a job anyway, because otherwise I would crash. Okay, (laughs) you see what I'm saying? But so my point is, I wonder sometimes if I wasn't an airline pilot and I had a guy sitting next to me and, you know, if I would have done such a... In in airlines, you have to do a good job or you crash, right? But I wonder if I would have done, if I would have been, you know, and I'm I'm not putting this down, if I would have been a dishwasher or anything else, I wonder if I would have just been a complete slacker, bringing dishonor to the Lord, okay? Friends, we ought not to live that way. And I think that's what uh, Gordon Fee is getting at. So friends, be content where you are. Remember, the status that matters to God is that you are justified through faith in Christ. And so with that, I'll open it up to any comments or questions. Oh, Bob's got something. Comments in one week on the same topic. And it concerns our use of Gordon Fee. Oh, okay. Two different people contacted me and said, Gordon Fee believes things that we do not believe. He's, he's a feminist. He's a Pentecostal. He's this, he's that. And so how come you're using his commentary? Well, we're using his commentary because it's the best one on 1 Corinthians that's ever been written. Okay, it's the best commentary on 1 Corinthians that's ever been written. Now, let me tell you something about writers and professionals and scholars. Most people have some sort of professional pride, okay? It used to be thought that, for example, the historian Josephus was totally unreliable because Josephus took a job with the Romans who paid him to, to just write history. Okay, so they thought, well, Josephus was paid by the Romans, therefore his history was false, and it was just sort of a gloss job to try to make the Romans look good. Yeah. But as a matter of fact, as archaeology and so on has gone forward and made discoveries, the discoveries have proved that Josephus was an excellent historian and he was writing the truth. Well, he has professional pride, even though he does have some private problems with his motivations, possibly. If somebody's a cabinet maker, their pride is to make a good cabinet. Maybe the cabinet maker uh, votes for the wrong candidates or 
believes things that we don't believe. We don't care. We want a good cabinet, right? Now, um, I think the best illustration of this principle I've ever seen is in, you mentioned Kittle. Oh, yeah. Well, let me talk about Kittle. Kittle in the contributors to the Theological Dictionary of the New Testament. I was told when I was in Bible college by the Reverend Wesley Smith that that was the best uh, Greek theological dictionary that's ever been written and that I needed to have it and use it if I want to understand Greek. Sure. Well, then there was a big controversy because it turns out that Kittle, during the period of Nazi Germany, was part of the German Christian church, which were the ones that supported Nazism. Mm -hmm. There was the confessing church and the German church. Mm. And so then people say, well, you can't use Kittle because he was a Nazi. Well, whether or not Kittle was in this German Christian church during that era doesn't affect whether he accurately told you what the Greek means. All right, now there's another uh, example that I want to give you, all right? Mm. There was Rudolf Bultmann. German theologian who is definitely a heretic, okay? Boltman demythologized the Bible. He was going to take away the supernatural. If you look up pistis, faith, in the Kittle, Theological Dictionary of the New Testament, the entry written under that name for the word faith was written by Rudolf Boltman. And when I, w- I was writing a book on the faith, that's my first book, by the way, and I think nobody read it. <laughs> maybe Dick, maybe Dick did it. He suffered greatly. <laughs> but I spent a whole year writing a book that just went into a file cabinet. And I was writing about faith because I wanted to correct the word of faith movement. And I looked up faith in Kittle's theological dictionary. And I thought, oh, no, Boltman wrote it. I, it was fantastic. It was a fantastic description of how the Bible uses the word faith in the Old Testament, intertestamental literature, wow. New Testament, hmm. the Septuagint. It's all in there, all right? And it was very accurate. Boltman may have been a false teacher in many ways, but he has professional pride, and it's his job to tell us accurately what the Greek writers meant by the word pistis. And so he gets it right. Yeah. right? Now, Gordon Fee is a feminist. I know that. Gordon Fee is a Pentecostal. I know that. Gordon Fee has, well, somebody said he was working on the NIV neutered Bible. I don't believe in neutering the Bible, by the way. All right? But that doesn't surprise me because he's a feminist. But none of that affects how he interprets 1 Corinthians. Because because of his professional pride, he wants to get it right. What did Paul mean? So therefore, I would urge you, and one of the things that us conservatives can fall into is this idea of... um, it just looking at people in general and saying if there's something wrong with them anywhere, then we can't listen to anything they have to say. But you know what? If some person that's goof, a goofball tells you the true gospel, 
the true gospel will still save you. Okay? <laughs> That's right. And That's some really nice, wonderful, virtuous guy tells you a false gospel, that false gospel will damn you. Right. Yeah. All right? And so I am defending Eric's right oh, to you. use Gordon Fee. Thank you. In fact, I encourage him to do so. <laughs> And his commentary in 1 Corinthians is not going to lead you astray. Now, everything else he does, I can't vouch for that. Right. right. Stefan? I was just thinking that, I can't remember exactly where, but there's a passage where there are people teaching the gospel for their own personal monetary gain. Paul says, yay gospel, but (laughs) their motives may not be correct. Yeah, amen, he rejoiced. gospel. Yeah. Well, it's like somebody, uh, another illustration of this. Uh, let's say you need brain surgery. Yeah. All right? And the best neurosurgeon in the area is a Catholic. <laughs> Transubstantiation. Okay. But, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> You're right. But on the other hand, there is this Christian who's never really done right. a lot of brain surgery, but is willing to try. Right. <laughs> <laughs> or an evangelical something. Christian, I mean. I mean, who are you going to have do the brain surgery? Right. You're going to want the one that knows what, what he's doing because uh, he, uh, this surgeon, wants to do the best job that can be done because that's what he does. Yeah. Okay? Yeah. And so we've got to just dissociate these things a little bit. Yeah. Once again, you give a classic example of bone picking, how much bones to pick out of someone's teaching and, you know, which have the discernment to know where the meat is. Uh, about your uh, your comparison about being in the status of uh, where you are, yeah. can that be cross-referenced to where Paul says in other places about, you know, in circumstances, you know, whatever circumstances I'm in yeah. or, you know, the whatever passages and Absolutely. stuff like that, can that yeah, be I agree. Yeah, over it. absolutely. He learned contentment in every circumstance, right. whether he was shipwrecked or whatever trouble he found himself in. He learned that through. And yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and thank you, Bob, for mentioning that because you had mentioned that once before that yeah. you know we agree with some things like with R.C. Sproul, other things we don't agree with him with. But you know, it's just knowing which bones to pick out and what it leaves to meet. Yeah, yeah. Well, and it's also possible, if necessary, um, I've used Lenski's commentary when we were going through. Hebrews, if you listen to our Hebrews radio series, I quote Lenski. Well, Lenski is a died-in-the-wool Lutheran. And I will say that when it comes to Lenski, his Lutheran dogma does show up in how he interprets various passages, okay, particularly about baptism and what have you. And, but you know what? I know that, and I know how to filter it out. Yeah. You know, if he's going along and he's following the text and doing a great job following the Greek and then all of a sudden he finds infant baptism where it isn't in the Bible, I go, oh, there's Lenski Lutheran. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's one thing, Bob, too, that we've tried to do here at Twin City Fellowship is not only give you what the Scriptures say, but try to show you how these we come to the answers. How do we exegete the Scriptures? And what that will hopefully enable you to do is if you buy a commentary or you see arguments, you'll be able to weigh the merits of the arguments that the scholars are giving by looking at the biblical data. And therefore, you're not bound just by what type of scholar you're reading, but you can weigh arguments knowing how the evidence of the scriptures are to be unfolded and understood. So, yeah, Paul. 
kind of on this. I think what, like with Gordon Fee and a lot of scholars in general, they, they're really talented, brilliant men that th- there's kind of the tendency to want to, and I don't think it's, you know, intentional, but they tend to defend minority positions mm. because if you can defend an unlikely position, it kind of shows your brilliance in a way. And okay. I, I don't think it's ever intentional really, but like Gordon Fee tends to do that with, say, the feminism, and you see that sure. show up in like 1 Corinthians 11. Sure. But the rest of 1 Corinthians, he does a great job. So yeah. that's you yeah. kind of have to know somebody's idiosyncrasies and kind of their... Right, right. Y- you know that, and then you can watch out for it. Like Pastor Bob was saying, Lenski, you watch out for his some of the Lutheranism, and yeah, you can read the commentary well, and I think that's... Yeah, exactly. Walter Kaiser Jr., I have a lot of respect for. I've learned a lot from him. But there's, again, uh, theological issues. I would disagree with him wholeheartedly. Um, The idea of an age of accountability. But now when I read Walter Kaiser concerning something in the Old Testament, I look at the merits of how he understands the Hebrew text, and I'm able to discard some of these other things to say, yeah, I may disagree with him here, but does he have merit in his arguments? And that's exactly what you're saying, Paul, is we have to be able to weigh those things out. And um, that's what's going to make us better. Exe- Remember, our theology is only as good as our exegesis. Amen. And so we have to just become better and better at that. Um, every day of our life, our goal should be to become better at that so we become better theologians. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, what Eric and Carl and I have to do week by week by week as we teach is to do exactly that, which is do the research, look at the text, read the scholarly sources, but we have to be able to weigh what's a good argument and what isn't. And we can't just go by people. For example, you mentioned Walter Kaiser. I love Walter Kaiser, but he's... I don't like his commentary on Exodus. Sure, yeah. Right. That's right. I, I was, it was just shocking to me as I was yeah. reading his commentary on Exodus when I was preaching through Exodus, and he's giving naturalistic explanations for the plagues. Uh-huh. And <laughs> the word commentary series, which would be considered more, quote, liberal, yeah. although it's extremely scholarly, the, the, the word, um, whoever was writing that commentary, said, no, the author intended us to believe that these plagues were all supernatural. All right? So it's my job. I'm reading these commentaries, and I had to make the decision as a pastor that I agree with the guy in the word commentary who said they're supernatural because that's what Moses intended us to believe. And I have to disagree with Walter Kaiser. That doesn't make Walter Kaiser bad. He's got some great arguments. In fact, I believe that Conquering King Fellowship is bringing him in next year to talk about, teach about the seed promises. Oh, that'd be fun. Yeah, Yeah. so I'd recommend going to that. I I think Kaiser is worth listening to. But sorry, Walter, you're wrong about the plagues. (laughs) That's right. That's right. Yeah, well said. So, Bob, what, uh, we're in Numbers uh, chapter 20? Yeah, Numbers chapter 20 today, and this is where Moses strikes the rock twice. Uh-huh. And so we'll find out what happens because of that. Wow. <laughs> well, praise God, that's exciting. Well, everyone, we'll see you upstairs.